Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as host Andy Hagens interviews asset managers, family offices, and industry thought leaders as they discuss the most effective strategies to grow generational wealth. From commodities to real estate, venture capital, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens. And wow, what a turbulent time for investors right now. Inflation remains stubbornly high. We have a pretty hawkish Fed, I would say, you know, hiking interest rates. And the, the big question is, what does all this mean for investors heading into 2023? Turbulent markets, they can be scary, but they can also be a, a big opportunity for enterprising investors. So we want to talk about real asset strategies as we wind down Q4 and head into 2023. And joining me to discuss this topic is Kara O'Halloran from FS Investments. And, and Kara, when you, you actually suggested the topic for this episode, and it turned out to be like so timely. I think we lucked out by timing it. Today, it's November 3rd as we're recording this. I know. I mean, it is such a, as you said, is such a timely topic. It's obviously we'll get into the inflation backdrop, but it's so hard to talk about inflation without thinking, oh, how the heck am I supposed to invest in this environment? And, you know, incomes, real assets. So I'm I'm really excited to be here. Um, thank you for having me. Yeah. Income and real assets. Gee, I'm thinking even, in, even in, I want to get back to that because I'm thinking, well, what kind of income survives inflation? But let's start with yeah. that. Let's start with inflation. So I had your your colleague, Laura, on the show. So that was episode 65. I'll link to that in the show notes if anybody missed that. We talked about the macro landscape. We talked about um, inflation. And her prediction was that it was already peaking based on forward-looking indicators. However, and actually, I should say it wasn't her prediction. I think this was your team's prediction. But she basically said it's it's going to come down a little bit from eight to maybe around six, and then we'll head into the new year. But but it's going to be stubbornly, you know, that it's not going to go back down to like four or anything like no, that next year. No, which is where we kind of coming into this year, a lot of people thought we might end 2022 back maybe under 5% or maybe we hoped we would end <laughs> under 5%, yeah. um, which is still much higher than the 2% inflation target that the Fed has, right? And so it, it really changes the investing landscape, even if we had gotten back sub 5%. But we're sitting here November 3rd, I think consensus for CPI, which comes out next week, is still 8.1%. It's over 8%. So I think there's little question that we are going to end 2022, probably on that, you know, the wrong side of 5%. Um, so this is not a, inflation was not transitory, right? We, we've all, we all know that. Um, but it is certainly a, uh, something that we're going to be contending with in the economy, but also in our portfolios for some time to come. So when you're predicting that it's going to be on the wrong side of five, is there any time limit to that? I mean, should I be anticipating that's 2023 or could that be 2024? I may have you have Laura back on for that one. Yeah. She is our economist. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. But, you know, I, I think what's important is that we're just not seeing inflation really get back to the Fed's target anytime soon. Um, and even slightly elevated inflation just really changes the investing landscape. Um, so I, I think that's really what it comes down to and the most important thing. Um, and if you think about we've done a lot of work on just looking at what inflation does to a traditional portfolio, um, I think the fixed income side is pretty obvious, right? You know, you're getting, yeah, we've seen interest rates rise. I think the 10 years a little over 4% today. Um, it's wreaking havoc on the your bond prices, right? So your fixed income portfolios are down significantly this year. Income, yeah, you're getting 4% or a little more than 4%, still not outpacing inflation. So, you know, your real income is still, you know, still negative. Um, but really importantly, inflation really eats at the equity side of a portfolio as well. Mm. We have brilliant quantitative strategists here at FS who have done a lot of work on this. Um, and the data shows that in an environment of high inflation that's rising, so whether or not we've peaked, you know, we might have peaked maybe last month, which means just one month ago we were in that high and rising uh, inflation environment, the forward 12-month return for equities is negative. Um, so we're we're still looking at a forward 12 month return that, you know, historically it, after an environment like we were just in has been really challenging for equities. Obviously, that's coming on the tails of this year. That's already been extremely challenging for equities. Um, and then so you're, you're having trouble on your 40 side of your, you know, your 60, 40 trouble on the 40 side, trouble on the 60 side. And then the relationship between those two assets breaks down when you have higher inflation. So our research has shown has has told us that in environments where inflation is greater than 2%, that negative stock bond correlation that we relied on for so many years to build balanced diversified portfolios, that negative correlation turns positive. So stocks and bonds anytime inflation or when inflation is greater than 2%, stocks and bonds are moving together more than they're moving apart. So that is really, and that is the bedrock of what we've built our diversified portfolios on for so long because we had such low inflation for the last couple of decades. So really the entire, you know, you have to really rethink portfolios at a whole, you know, at, at a whole in this elevated uh, inflation environment. Yeah. And, and just one thing I always bring up, and I am a lot of fun at parties, is, you know, when people mentioned 4% bond yields. I'm like, you're actually taxed unless, unless this is in an IRA or right. 401k or a muni bond, you know, you're taxed on that nominal rate. So yeah. it's not a negative four, uh, real yield. It's actually lower than that. Which it's a great I, point. Yeah. Which is just, it's silly. Um, so obviously enter real assets, right? Mm -hmm. So that's our topic for today, a real asset yeah. strategy for 2023. And I think as you pointed out very eloquently, this is the time when investors need real assets in their portfolio because we have high inflation that's also rising. Equities don't perform well on that forward basis, forward 12-month basis. You know, Bonds obviously do not perform well. So it's really what's left. What's yeah. left is, is alts. So let's Let's dive into real assets. And uh, I know that you like to use the rice mnemonic. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I'm a big sushi eater. So that helps me remember it. So yeah, rice, it's 
RICE, so real estate, infrastructure, commodities, and energy. Um, so that just helps me keep it straight. So, you know, if we're thinking about traditional real assets, real estate, it's you know farmland, it's office buildings, retail, all of that. Um, infrastructure is you know bridges and tolls and airports, cell towers. Um, commodities are we know commodities, right? It's the the basic raw materials. It's it's wheat. It's energy um, or oil and natural gas. It's, you know, all those raw material inputs. And then energy is really kind of the, we view it as the ecosystems surrounding those raw um, energy commodities. So pipelines, you know, midstream companies, utilities, all of that, um, that really store and process those, those raw materials. Okay. Um, well, among those, seems like we've had oil and gas be in the news a lot lately, obviously commodity prices and real estate, but let's start with commodities. I mean, it's interesting. The interesting thing to me is some of these commodities, some of these inputs remain, you know, stubbornly high, you know, think oil, gas prices, but some of them seem like they are well off their peak. Some of these input costs, is there any rhyme or reason to why you know, some of this, it seems like the supply chain is like one third of the way fixed or something. <laughs> <laughs> Who even knows about that? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think certainly we've seen some commodities come off their highs, especially those highs that we saw right after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is really when we saw that supply shock. Um, but I, I think there are really structural and secular tailwinds in, or headwinds in place to keep those from falling significantly. So I think, and we'll get into all this because we have we have so much to talk about. I'm so excited. I get excited about this topic, but um, I, I really think this, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and some of the events of the last two years, the pandemic, all of this really kind of necessitated a re-examination of these global supply chains, right? So we realized how fragile our energy ecosystem is. And, you know, we're heading into the winter months and I know natural gas in Europe is going to be a challenge, all of that. So really, I think that there's structural things in place that are going to keep commodity prices elevated for some time, maybe not at the highs that we saw directly after, you know, in February, March, April, directly after that invasion, that really yeah. acute supply shock, but um, probably not you know, what we're going to, probably not going to go back to the prices that we saw in the depths of the COVID pandemic, right? Um, right. Yeah, I think food, food shortages, all of this. I mean, there's all of these trends in place that um, almost kind of came to a head um, in the last couple of for this year, really. What you you referenced that we realized how you know sensitive our energy supply chain was, but I'm thinking, well, did we really realize that? Like, I guess we kind of realized it, but I'm not really seeing any major policy changes yeah. or even changes in how capital's being deployed, you know, really. Um, so Fair, it's structural, I, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we're very big believers of this kind of idea of deglobalization. And this is something that's going to take years to play out, not months or quarters. Um, but, it, you know, the, the rebuilding of supply chains, the onshoring or friendshoring, whatever it is. So, yes, you know, I don't know that we've seen... Uh, in the last couple of months, a ton of change, but it is really his longer term thesis. And so deglobalization, that will just be a sort of constant inflationary pressure, no? That's exactly right. Yes. So globalization has a direct link to low inflation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we saw durable goods deflation for so many years that really offset some of that those uh, that inflation that we did see in services um, in the decades leading up to the pandemic. So, um, yeah, so certainly deglobalization could contribute to inflationary pressures going forward. Um, we are also really big believers of the idea of the end of the great moderation. So the great moderation being this period where of really low macroeconomic volatility. So that really kind of slow, steady growth, low inflation, low volatility in your macroeconomic backdrop. Um, and that, and so, you know, that period has really ended um, in our view. And what that will cause is heightened volatility in the macro backdrop, which is then going to translate into volatility in markets. Um, So more quicker, faster cycles, more volatility and inflation. um, And that's going to that. We're seeing that in markets right now, all of that volatility with such a macro driven backdrop right now. Um, And that's just our view that we're we're in for more of that going forward. It's going to be a challenge. That's a really interesting way to put it. The end of the great moderation Mm-hmm. And I think I agree. And, you know, one thing that's occurred to me a lot lately, well, I mentioned this to Laura, your colleague, was, you know, the Fed, they mentioned their long-term inflation target, 2%. And they also, you know, at the meeting this past week, uh, Chairman Powell, I think they, or they released a statement that sort of reiterated that long-term inflation target. And I personally, I said, you know, I think the target maybe is like in the threes or short-term target, even in the fours. If if like by January, February, they can get a CPI print that's 4.75, they're going to- I think they'd be thrilled. Exactly. <laughs> We'd all be thrilled. Exactly. And I think if they get it to 3.75, they might think we can hang out here for a good long while. Like my, I'm I'm doubting- that they really have the stomach to cause enough of a recession to get the inflation rate back to 2% because some of it is not this short-term, you know, short-term shock. Some of it's underlying structural secular as, as you pointed out. So do you think we should just sort of prepare as investors for that higher floor of what the CPI will be like maybe for the rest of my life? I, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's it's hard to forecast that far out, let alone, you know, just one year out. But I do think these are challenges like we haven't faced inflation like this, as we know, since the 70s. But with this idea of the end of the great moderation, as we just talked about, we think inflation is going to be more volatile. So, yes, like there are probably periods that we're going to see more elevated inflation and volatility in inflation. And and so, yes, we need we need to prepare our portfolios, not just for that, but also just more broad volatility in markets. I just I think the great moderation, something I always say is it made a lot of us look like really good allocators because the 60-40 portfolio just, you know, you couldn't beat it. Um, This ever, ever declining interest rates, boosting your bonds and a really supportive Fed boosting equities, you couldn't beat the beta trade. Um, So it made a lot of us look really, really good. And I think things are going to be really challenged going forward. But I think the good news is that there are a lot of solutions out there to address these challenges. We haven't needed a lot of the solutions for the past decade. Um, Alternatives, obviously, is what I'm getting at here. Um, And so there are these alternatives do exist. um, and, And I think they're going to be very, very important in every portfolio going forward. Absolutely. So we talked about energy, commodities, 
want to turn to real estate for yeah. a minute. I'm seeing these opposing forces, right? Where we have uh, obviously interest rates going up. So debt's more expensive. It's more expensive to finance any kind of real estate transaction. So we're, we're seeing activity in commercial real estate, residential real estate really slow down quite a bit. But mm-hmm. you know, we're not seeing huge price adjustments. I mean, we're seeing maybe modest price adjustments, maybe more significant in certain MSAs, but not there's not some big national, you know, 10%, 15% dip in home prices. Uh, do you think it's it like like if 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 an investor is thinking about allocating more to real estate? Should they be waiting for a dip or is it just the dip's never going to come type of thing? So I think it's a good I think let's let's separate and talk about the housing market and then the commercial real estate markets. I think there there's different dynamics at play there. I think I'll touch on the housing market quickly. Um, Housing is a really emotional asset, right? It's really like you don't want to sell your house. You don't want to cut the price of your house. You don't want to, if you saw your neighbor sell their house for $500,000, you're not going to say, oh, I, you know, last year, you're not going to say, oh, I can only get $450,000. You're going to say, no, my house is better than theirs. I can get $550,000. So I think it's, it's, you're you're not going to see probably these really broad-based price cuts yet. Um, I also think we're so structurally underhoused just given that kind of hangover from the global financial crisis, like we just don't have enough houses. Obviously, that is that is pressuring rents, um, contributing to inflation. Um, so maybe that's a good way to pivot into the commercial real estate side of things um, with multifamily, obviously being a um, really a, a pandemic darling <laughs> um, is how we like to put it. Um, but, you know, I think if you're thinking about an investment in commercial real estate right now, um, things are slowing, yes, but they're coming off, they're slowing off of a really, really exceptional base. I mean, we saw massive property price appreciation over the past few years, you know, record sales volume. So it's slowing, yes. It's not outright decelerating at this point. I do think that there are ways, um, I think real estate is also one of the kind of the real assets that people instantly look to, right? Like like kind of a, a brain synapse there. It's one of the more, more common real assets. Um, and, you know, it, it's for good reason, right? You there, It has almost a 1.0 beta to inflation. So it's almost historically been a one for one inflation hedge um, as, you know, really tenants are able, or landlords, excuse me, are able to pass along uh, those price increases through in- increased rent. Um, and it's really a nominal asset. You know, it's tied to nominal GDP, which we're still seeing strong nominal GDP. Um, But I do think you have to consider the fact that we are seeing rising interest rates, as we've talked about, which is, you know, the cost of financing is going up. So if you're thinking about a real estate investment right now, um, you know, maybe that means there's probably less uh, you know, less income left over for the equity holders, right? So maybe it's moving up the capital structure. We really like CRE debt right now. Um, if if most of your return is going to come from income anyway, getting that subordination below you is is a nice place to be. Understood. Okay. So, um, I mean, among the the rice mnemonic, do you have a particular favorite? I mean what you know oil and gas or commercial yeah. real estate or... I, I love being asked what 
my favorite asset classes are and like getting excited about I'm I'm a lot of fun at parties too, as you can tell. Um, no, I actually don't, and I think that it's because if you're designing a very you know a well constructed real asset portfolio, I I think you need all of them, um, and I think that they all serve different purposes. And I think and I think we'll get into what a well constructed portfolio looks like, but I do think having um, having the ability to invest across those asset classes is important and you can toggle it up, toggle it down based on the the macro. Um, but I think being able to invest in all of those is what's going to give you um, the, the best well-constructed real asset portfolio. Got it. I mean, if okay. you want to talk my personal interest, I always think real estate is fun, but that's just a, you know, that's my, my side thing. My just personal thing. But I think in an investing case, it's all of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that can, you know, having something be fun or, or be a passion. I do think that that can be important in, in the sense that, you know, like, like when the going gets tough, when, when an asset class has a price dip or faces some headwinds, uh, you know, being a believer, having the, the strong hands. I mean, I, I do think that is a little bit important as we've seen with, you know, physical gold, you know, Bitcoin, crypto yeah. real estate yeah. you know when <laughs> if you're not a long-term believer then maybe you shouldn't deploy capital um yeah it's a good point so i read some of your research prior to you know this podcast recording um some of the research about these rice assets and one thing that the research mentioned was next gen real assets could you talk a little bit about what you mean by next gen real assets yes absolutely so we've talked about real assets as really being that inflation hedge in your portfolio. Um, and it's because they have that intrinsic value. They're physical. You can touch, you can hold them. Um, but I, if you think about why real assets exist at their core, it's to build and power. And I will add protect after you know the geopolitical tensions this year. So it's build power and protect our nations and our economies. And so we didn't mention this, but I host the FS podcast. So I'm going to put my, I'm going to ask you a question now. Um, it's the only one I promise, yep. but you know, does the world today look the same as it did in the 1970s? No, goodness. No. Yeah. It, it doesn't even really look the same as it did two years ago before three years ago before the pandemic. Right. So yeah. really these these next gen real assets are the companies that we think are going to play a, a critical role in building, expanding and maintaining that global digital and social infrastructure required to build power, and protect our nations and our economies in the future. Um, so if it's helpful, I could walk through examples um, yeah, to no, kind I, of bring this to life a little bit. Well, two things. Well, one okay. is I want to plug your, it's called FS Fireside. Is that right? It, it is. It's called Fireside. Yes. Yeah. And it's really good content. So Thank you. You know, if, you, if you're listening, any listeners who are on iTunes right now, go into the search bar and search for that right now, because I actually told Kara, I don't really care for most investing podcasts. I don't listen to a lot of them, <laughs> uh, but it is a good one that I've listened to quite a bit. That was my first question but my second question is with these you know next gen real assets are, are would they not be like in in my equities part of my portfolio 
you know, like with venture capital type, you know, or startups or it's not as stocks. yeah, it's not as startupy as I just made it sound. Okay, <laughs> um, all right, I, so we'll get into that. I know yeah. it sounds a little like Kathy Wood esque, but it's not. I promise. So we'll we'll um, I think walking through some examples could be helpful. Let's so I'll use the same Rice acronym, and I can do like a traditional and a next gen equivalent because I think that's kind of what helps solidify it for me. Um, so. We talked about real estate. So if farmland was your traditional real, you know, your traditional in the 1970s or or beyond, um, then you know, your now it's data centers, it's cold storage, it's life sciences labs. I'm thinking about, you know, we just developed uh, multiple effective COVID, vac COVID vaccines in record time. And so life science labs, the demand is just going to continue to be there. Mm -hmm. um, it's food safety, it's all of that thinking about um, commodities. So historically it's wheat, livestock, oil, natural gas. Think about the um, transition to renewable resources. So lithium, all lithium, nickel, cobalt, the things that are used in batteries. Um, it's aluminum that's used in solar panels. Um, and then infrastructure, I think this is the one that has, I just went out of order, I apologize, but. I get all excited. Um, but so infrastructure. So it's your we talked about it's like airports, cell towers, all of that. Going forward, it's 5G. It's cloud computing, semiconductors, data security. It's reliable broadband for so many, um, you know, rural parts of the country. Um, and then what's my last one? Energy. See, this is why I can't go out of order. Um, and so this is again, it's the solar, wind, power, you know, all renewable resources, electric vehicles, all of that. So there's really a, a there's kind of a traditional and then a next gen counterpart, I guess, for all of our um, categories. And really, it, these are a result of we've talked about, I keep saying structural and secular tailwinds, but they're really the result of these, you know, decades long trends that I believe were really accelerated by the onset of the COVID pandemic and to a degree, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So we we were trending towards you know more reliable broadband access for all or 5G. And then all of a sudden, we're all at our homes and we need to be online 24 seven, right? right? So, and then things like, we talked about the energy ecosystem already. So really all of these long-term trends kind of came to a head in the last couple of years. And in our view, really necessitated a, a not a re-examination, but more of an expansion of the definition of real assets. That's really interesting. So I'm, I'm thinking of of like Amazon, like you mentioned, the COVID lockdowns and all that, but like AWS, cloud computing, like that's a huge infrastructure yeah. thing, Absolutely. all their logistics. But then I'm thinking, well, I own VTI, right? I own my Vanguard total equities fund, but what are the inputs, you know, the raw materials, the commodities, that an Amazon needs to run to expand right. in 2023, or same thing with Tesla, electric cars. You mentioned lithium, so it's it's maybe just a, like you said, a broadening, uh, you know, beyond wheat. Exactly. <laughs> wheat <and> exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think that's exactly right. Um, I actually think electric vehicles are kind of the perfect microcosm for thinking about next gen real assets. Um, because it's, you know, you could, if you're thinking about it from an investment case, right, you could buy an electric vehicle, the stock of an electric vehicle maker, but you could also buy the commodities used in the solar panels. You could buy 
or the batteries. You, know, you could buy, there's the entire charging infrastructure that needs to get built out. So there's really all of these knock-on effects mm-hmm. from this one kind of industry. Um, and all of it is going to require massive, massive investment um, and, and capital. Yeah, absolutely. So, man, there's there's so much to unpack there. So one thing I wanted to ask about reference to energy, mm-hmm. this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. So I've seen surveys among RIAs and wealth managers even. It's, it's roughly 50-50, I think, where about half of wealth managers find that ESG has become a sort of a political term, not just a pure investing term. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know a lot of institutional investors and, and even publicly traded corporations, they're now allocating capital to energy product uh, projects that are you know ESG friendly, meaning that there's a you know relatively lower amount of capital flowing into the, just the old school like oil and gas deals in the United States, for instance, mm-hmm. which could be an opportunity for private capital, for family offices, for you know very high net worth accredited investors to potentially have outsized returns because it's just it's a, an area of the of the commodities market uh in the real assets market where a lot of institutionals are just shying away from. Hmm. So I I view that as a potential opportunity right now. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean I think it's a it's a good question. I think that you know, I, I guess the way that I view the space and view this is that, you know, you're, you are talking about a the opportunity in a traditional real asset that is almost created by the shift towards the next generation real asset. Yeah. Um, so we we still need the traditional, right? It's the combination of the two is what I think is really um, the important part of building a, a good portfolio. So yeah, you know, maybe that is a good opportunity for some of the, you know, the, that private capital and probably there's some sort of liquidity premium available there if it's if you are going private. But um, we really view the combination between because we still need we still need to drive our cars. We still need to drive on bridges. You know, I still need to go. I still go to an office building. Um, so there are still the need for really those traditional assets, but it's it's combining them with the next gen that allows us, we think, unlocks the full opportunity set. And also what we haven't touched on yet is allows us to build more of a full cycle real asset solution. More Interesting. durable. Interesting. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the the combination of the two, because even if you think of the the electric car, you know, the Tesla, how how much hydrocarbon energy, how much oil is used to even produce a Tesla or an electric right. car, right? I mean, almost every every part of our life is touched by hydrocarbons. You know, yeah. they're used at some point in the supply chain. So. So, so you really look at this like it, it's almost it's its own portfolio, the the real asset Absolutely. slice, and it's not an either or. It, no, it's a both. It's a, it's a both and. <laughs> okay, so then let's let's talk about that. Okay. So, and actually, I have a pre question to the question. Okay. So, the eventual question I want to talk about constructing that real asset portfolio, but the 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 precursor question is, what slice of an investor portfolio really should that be? Because I I feel like, you know, maybe 10 years ago, that would have been a 10% slice, maybe a 5% slice, yeah, a, a larger slice for institutionals. 
But for a lot of very high net worth investors, a lot of families, they weren't really allocating that significant of a part of their... So it's like, if it's only 10% real estate, maybe a little bit in precious metals, oil and gas, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Are we really talking about a larger allocation within that portfolio to begin with? Yeah. I mean, I think it's so hard to put a number on portfolios that I haven't seen. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do think that, yeah, I mean, I think this deserves a, given the challenges that I outlined at the front, uh, you know, just in constructing um, well-diversified portfolios, I think alternatives in general deserve a much larger slice of the allocation right now. And then within that, given that we're still in this really elevated inflation environment, yeah, I, I think real assets need to be a decent a decent chunk of that. I don't think that 60-40 math adds up anymore, right? Maybe it's 50-30-20. It depends. Um, but yeah, I certainly think that this is a space we need to be, we really need to be allocating to. Got it. So everyone should be in an exactly 50-30-20 portfolio. That's it. Yeah. I just <laughs> solved, I just solved the, uh, <laughs> I told you I'm a good allocator. Remember, I, I yeah. just <laughs> the, the great moderation made me feel like I'm really good at this. No, um, no, it, it's impossible to just put numbers on obviously a broad, a broad swath. But I think we just we truly believe that these need to be I think more importantly than a number, I guess I'll say, is that these need to be strategic holdings. These are not you're not timing this. These are not tactical. Um, yes, real assets are important because we are battling that elevated inflation. But we do view this as a strategic allocation. Um, and we'll talk about when we get into the well-constructed portfolio about why that can be true and why you should hold these throughout a cycle. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned it's not you know, you don't recommend it as a as a tactical piece of a portfolio because a lot of institutionals are overweight alternatives right now. Because if they were 50, 30, 20 or 50, 25, 25, you know, going into 12 months ago, and then now they've marked down pretty significant losses on the equities and on the bond side. And the whereas the real asset side of the portfolio is probably holding up better. So it's interesting that a lot of institutionals are probably in a position right now where they're overweight, but nevertheless, retail investors as a whole are wildly underweight this asset class. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think they're especially underweight real assets because we have not we so we have viewed them as a strategic part of a portfolio for a number of years, even before this inflation, this inflationary cycle. Um I think obviously they are kind of in vogue right now because of they're getting attention now because of this inflationary sure. cycle. Um, but investors have not really paid attention to them since the 70s because they didn't they thought they didn't need to. Right. Um, because we have not faced inflation like this. Um, and I also think a little bit the notion that for the first year that we taught or first call it during 2021 when we talked about inflation, we called it transitory, right? Like, I don't think a lot of people were really adjusting their portfolios in the way that they needed to. And again, I'm talking like it's a tactical trade. I'm just thinking about what we actually hear from advisors and, and, and investors and what they're doing. I don't think a lot of people were really re-examining their portfolios probably in the way that we believe you needed to during that time because we had this idea that, oh, inflation's transitory. The Fed's not going to have to hike and cause all of this massive volatility. Um, but as we've talked about, you know, we think this is the environment we're going to be in for the foreseeable future. 
And it's not too late, right? I mean, it's no, definitely <laughs> not. No, never too late. <laughs> so we're not talking about an, any individual's portfolio, but l- let's say we're talking about a generic 50, 30, 20 portfolio. I think that honestly, I think that is a great starting point for like a family office. Mm-hmm. So talk about the 20. What is a well-constructed real asset allocation look like? Yeah, um, it's exactly as I've kind of outlined. It's really, it's um, the combination of a blend of these traditional real assets and these next-gen real assets. And really importantly, so it's twofold. It's that. And then importantly, it's the ability to be very active, very flexible, and very tactical within that portfolio. You know, the the allocation as at a, as a whole is more strategic, but markets are moving faster than ever. We're all experiencing that every single day. So the ability to be really active in that sleeve is extremely important. Um, so I think if so, I think thinking about a full cycle, you know, real assets when they're working can offer phenomenal return potential. I think anyone who they're very cyclically tied to the economy, right? So in times like 08 in the global financial crisis, anyone investing in real assets was probably in just traditional real assets, I should clarify. Um, They know how hard that can be because they're so cyclically oriented. Um, You can really get burned. So that is why we think you really need to pair the traditional with the next gen that has more of that secular growth component and we haven't even really, we didn't even talk about the, there's so much we could get into, but we the tailwinds behind these next-gen real assets, right? There's the social tailwinds that we talked about with ESG investing. There's the government tailwinds, you know, the pledges to decarbonize. The political tailwinds, the trade wars with China, all of this are tailwinds to the necessity for these next-gen real assets. And Quite frankly, you don't have to. We talked about you, you t- mentioned ESG being kind of a political topic right now. You don't even really have to believe in ESG as a concept. You can or you cannot. It doesn't really matter. But at the end of the day, government, you know, there are mandates for for decarbonization, yeah. right? And so, if yeah, you're, I'm not I'm not going to bet against the the government plowing right. and, uh, billions of dollars into it for sure. Yeah, and so it's like if you're if you're able to be you know, in on the receiving end or, or one of the companies that has to supply those services that they're going to be mandated to supply, I think that's a pretty good place to be. So whether or not you fundamentally believe that ESG is political or believe that we are going to decarbonize by the dates that, you mm-hmm. know, we're mandated to, there's still massive opportunity and massive capital that's going to flow to those providers. And and that's, you know, being there, you can still benefit. So a um, so lot of tailwinds in place. And so really, you know, if you think about, I'm just thinking about a cycle, right? So early cycle, um, and this is not a hard and fast rule, but early cycle, maybe you're kind of overweight commodities, equity, underweight fixed income, like a treasure tips or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, as you advance in the cycle, you're kind of toggling, you're toggling commodities down a bit. I don't think you're going to completely sell out of them, but um, maybe you're toggling some of those next gen. Right. And so later in the cycle, you're you're going into more of those secular growth stories um, and then fixed income, you know, the tips maybe get get overweight. So there's really a way that in our view, it's, it's combining, as I said, the traditional, the next gen to build this full cycle solution. I really like that. One th- yeah. part of that that I struggle with, I guess, is staying tactical, though, in the sense that 
a lot of alternative investments are either very illiquid or at least somewhat illiquid. You know, now we've now there's a spectrum, right? So um you have some alternative investments, like let's say a qualified opportunity fund, the whole period is 10 years, right? It's basically you write your check and you're holding it for 10 years. So there's I think there's some pieces of the portfolio that it would it's it's hard to adjust. Now maybe you could kind of time yeah. when you're investing, you know, into into it. Is it. Do you have any comments on that? Like, how how does one stay tactical yeah. when there are pieces that are illiquid? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very, very, very important to match your structure with your strategy and your underlying assets, right? So if I'm thinking, take just a daily liquid mutual fund, real asset fund, they exist. Mm-hmm. Um, you can access the equity of some of these real asset providers. Um, and we have data on this. It's the, the sectors. There are sectors that can grow their revenue. Um, they have the high beta to inflation, these certain sectors. So it's those real asset sectors. It's industrials, utilities, energy, real estate. Um, so you can access, you can get exposure to real asset linked companies in a daily liquid form. The challenge, though, is that those sectors at the index level at the S&P 500 level, they only make up 20% of the index. So that is what I mean by being really active and tactical is that, you know, there are earnings to be had and there are places that you can go to get exposure to these companies that are poised to benefit from inflation. Mm -hmm. It's just that you can't do it at the index level. So you really, that is what I mean by being really active and tactical. Got it. I mean, it's, it's an opportunity for alpha, right? It's, it's, I think so many investors just gave up on alpha and, and quite frankly, for good reason, right? I mean, there were a lot of active managers that were not adding value in the fixed income space and Mm -hmm. in the equity space. But to your point, it, you know, active management does pay off in the alternative space. Absolutely. Yes. hundred percent. So do you see there being a trend in alternatives towards increased liquidity as time goes on? Like in other words, some of the the more popular wrappers or product types that are more liquid, do you see them kind of gaining steam as more folks invest and, and want that liquidity? Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to have a range of liquidity options, right? And again, matching your underlying assets to that structure. Mm-hmm. I do think that there's um, the evolution of the space. There's You're able to um, to offer that daily liquidity, there are products that fit nicely inside that mutual fund wrapper. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but they're all. I think there's also a place in the portfolio for more of your illiquid. Um, I, I just think that there's, you know, your alternatives portfolio. Maybe a lot of people only invested in one or two alternatives historically, but they're going to need to invest in more, and you're going to diversify within your alternatives bucket. So maybe that's some daily liquid, some more illiquid. Um, so I, I just think that there's certainly opportunity for really liquid, you know, investments that span the liquidity spectrum. So let's zoom out for a minute. Given what you said about just that larger allocation to real assets, to the point where there's enough of an allocation that you know investors can diversify within that allocation. What do you see being the tailwinds for alternatives in, the, let's say, the next decade or two? I mean, obviously, in the past few decades, it was institutions. You know, we had the Ivy portfolio and all these pension funds and institutions who are very interested in alternatives, deploying increased amounts of capital into alternatives. 
And now it's, it's, you know, in theory, at least the retail investor is, is yeah. finally going to enter that market in a big way. Yeah. Do you think that's going to play out as planned? I mean, I, I forget the the actual stat. It's something like four or 5% is what the re- retail investor has allocated. Do you think that level is really going to grow to match what institutional investors have in real, I do. real assets? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do. I think really what FS was designed to do is to democratize alternatives, to really bring alternative investments to the retail investor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways, the market has come to us. We've talked about that, it, the need for alternatives now. And you know, while that great beta trade was playing out and you were fine in your traditional investments, there's so much, there's been so much evolution in the space that's really, you know, we have these structures that retail investors are able to access that fit really nicely in a in a diversified portfolio. Um, I think it's going to continue, it's going to require education, right? These are complex, nuanced topics. So I think, you know, your podcast is, is a fantastic example of, you know, education in the space. And we try to provide a lot of that as well. So I think that, yeah, I mean, I think retail investors need alternatives and alternatives exist. So I think it's really, it's going to take education. It'll take some time for adoption, but really, um, yes, I, I, you know, the time for alternatives is now. You've mentioned the wrappers there. Could I put you on the spot? Are there any wrappers that you think are really poised to outperform that offer just intrinsically more value to that, you know, RAA retail segment of the market? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that, you know, the if you are willing to give up some liquidity, um, there are semi-liquid products that exist right now. So take an interval fund, for example, relatively new-ish in the grand scheme of investing. So you're getting quarterly liquidity, which, you know, is still a relative degree of liquidity, right? You're not locking up yeah. your assets for years or you know, decades. Um, so I think that allows you, I think what that does is it really takes a lot of the emotion out of it. I think it's really easy to, when markets are tanking like they are these days, yeah. it's really easy to look at your statement and say, I don't want that anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really managing that emotional component. And I think that if you're willing to give up a little bit of liquidity and, you know, give the manager that capital to manage through the cycle and not be forced to sell. I think that's a really interesting, um, I think that's a really interesting structure. But again, I think that there's really a need for a range of liquidity um, within portfolios. I like it. Yep. You you know, so there's really something for every investor. If you really, absolutely. and, and I mean, I would say, you know, a lot of people don't need the liquidity. They think they do. They think but, they do. Exactly right. right. Yeah. And yeah. as you as you point out, it can it can hurt you. I mean, the, the behavioral yes. risk that liquidity sort of what's the word? Um, it sort of uh, incentivizes almost bad behavior. Yeah. I think absolutely. Man, manic Mister Market repricing your portfolio mm-hmm. every single day. Well, Kara, you've given me a ton to chew on here. Uh, I can't thank you enough for just all these insights about real assets and portfolio construction. I want to plug your podcast one more time. I'll be sure to link to it on our show notes page. But if if you're listening on Spotify or on iTunes right now, just search 
Fireside. Sorry. Fireside. Yep. FS Fireside. It'll come up. <laughs> it'll yeah. pop up. Yeah. But where else, Kara, where else can our viewers and listeners go to learn more about FS Investments and your research? Yeah. Uh, FSinvestments.com. And then in the insights tab, um, all of our research is there. Uh, I have a page. So all of my my stuff is there and you can sign up for all of that on our website and obviously subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Awesome. So for our listeners and viewers, I'll be sure to link to all those resources in our show notes that you can always access at altstb.com slash podcast. Kara, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Andy. It was a pleasure. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 